Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is October the 12th in 2022, and my guest is Dushan Matushka. Dushan is the founder and CEO of the Amity Age Academy, a Bitcoin education center based in the startup city of Prospera on the island of Roatan, Honduras. In fact, that's where I am right now. <laughs> Amity Age Academy has probably one of the best views on the island, and it's an epic Caribbean island, and I can also attest it has one of the best coffees on the island. And a great <laughs> Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dushan. Hi there, Niklas. I'm super happy that you're in the academy right now. I will be meeting here pretty soon in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. So the mission of the academy is to accelerate Bitcoinization. We are going to have a conversation about what that is and what it means, your story and how you came to set up the MTH Academy. And then we're going to have a free-flowing conversation about Bitcoinization, what it is, what it means your thesis about the future of money. Before we do that, what would you like listeners to know about Dushan, the person? Okay, people should know about me that uh, I'm a passionate Bitcoiner, passionate educator. I used to teach mathematics, physics, and English when I was in a university in Slovakia. And I fell in love with education at the time. And I decided I want to go this way and help people understand various concepts and then in 2017 i fell in love with bitcoin because of how it can help people around the world and i just mer merged the passions together one for bitcoin one for education and this is where i'm now and in my free time i'm doing sailing competitively as well and i'm also doing uh, latin dancing so these are my hobbies Fantastic. How did you come to like Bitcoin so much? First of all, I was a bit skeptical as most of the people. So in 2015, I heard about Bitcoin for the first time, but I didn't pay a lot of attention. I really dismissed it immediately. And for me, it was like a, some scammy project. And then in 2017, my friend Peter told me about Bitcoin. I was like, oh my God, Peter, it got you as well. I trusted you that you will not fall for scams and so on. But Peter was telling me not about the price but more about how Bitcoin can help where economies doesn't have bank structures or like they, they don't have these brick and mortar banks where you can go to. So where people handle only cash, they need to travel three hours to pay for their electricity bill. So this was for me really fascinating how Bitcoin as an open network without permissions, how it can help them to facilitate trade and to help them really be part of the global economy. And this is what got me really hooked. The, the whole philosophical concept of Bitcoin, the social concept of Bitcoin. And then I researched it more from the point of view of cryptography and mathematics. And I just, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. So what happened then? How did you get from the country where you're from Slovakia to all the way over here in Central America? Wow, so that's a pretty huge coincidence. The story started last year when our client who is mining Bitcoin with us, Robert, is our good friend of us. And uh, Robert told me about an island in Caribbean, which is beautiful, which is amazing. And he was buying a land there. And I was like, what the heck? I've never heard about Rotom before. And Robert was sending me pictures and videos of, of beaches and the palms and everything i was like oh my god it's really beautiful so we decided to come with my girlfriend and also with my colleague and his family 
So we came to Roatan first time this year, 2022, in March. And we spent there about 10 days. So we were just traveling around from east to west, just enjoying the beaches, enjoying the people and, and the places. And really coincidentally, a few days before before my visit to Roatan, I figured out there is something called Prospera Summit going on. And so I checked Prospera website, but my first impression was like, oh, this is some kind of a scammy project because I saw a bunch of these crypto islands and these initiatives. So for me, it was like, oh my God, this is just one of them. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't care. But the date of the summit was exactly the same week when we've been on Roata. So I said, okay, it would be really like bad not to go to, to check it out. So we registered, we sent pictures and information. And I was, I think I was communicating with you at the time. And what really actually, what got me hooked. And I think maybe that's the reason why I came in the end was that you posted all the bios and pictures of people that were attending on the website or in the PDF. And I was like, oh my God, there are really interesting people coming there. But I was still a bit skeptical. I was ex expecting coming to some green area with one little tent and like few geeks hanging around. But when I came to Prospera, I was like, oh my God, what is this? I was like the beta building was standing. All the people were there, 50 or 60 people around, amazing talks, amazing people. I was like, oh my God, I was super surprised by that. and. So I came to, on the day we had these presentations that we can present something that we would like to do on the island. So I was really thinking about, should I present the academy that I'm planning to? Because we had it a few months in our minds already. I was like, okay, let's do it. So I did a presentation and in the end, Eric was sitting in the front row and he told me like, so Dushan, what are you doing afternoon? I was like, yeah, I'm going to snorkel with my girlfriend. He said, okay, before you go snorkel with your girlfriend, let me show you one building. Because if you like it from July, you can have it and you can start the academy there. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And he took me to the place where you're sitting right now, <laughs> the Sky Building, but currently named METH Academy. And that's one of the best views, if not the best view on the whole island, as you said in the beginning. And I got really hooked. I was like, oh my God, I want to be here. The place was beautiful. And before it was a school, it was Montessori school and the, the, the school was growing. So they needed a bigger space. So that's why the place were, was available since, since July. And I was speaking with Eric a lot about the idea, but what really got me hooked into Prospera as well, besides the summit and the people that came was the values that Eric and the people around Prospera had. And they were really in, in line with my values of liberty, entrepreneurship, really working hard to achieving results. And I was also reading Atlas Shrugged, which is one of my top three books. And I named my company in Slovakia, John Galt LLC. <laughs> so when I told Eric, he was like, oh my God, it's amazing. So we really were talking like 30 minutes just about Ayn Rand, objectivism, Atlas Shrugged and, and all these ideas. And I was like, okay, so this is the place and this, these are the people that I would like to spend more time with. And that was his decision to, to start the initiative and to start everything that's happening right now. Great. To provide some context, so Eric Ryman is the CEO of Prospera and I'm just was chuckling as you told the story because I organized this conference, the Build yes. Prospera <laughs> Summit in 2022, and actually had a similar experience than what you had, because that was also for me the first time visiting Prospera. Oh, right? I read cool. it, Yeah, I read about it before and I thought this is a great idea because I saw so much innovation that was held back because of bad laws and bad regulations. When I read about Prospera, that was like, what if you could do it better? What if you could innovate, have a couple of startups that try better governance systems and better laws that sort of mm -hmm. allow innovation and business to thrive? But I was also skeptical, like you were. I think many people that hear about Prosper for the first time, or Bitcoin for the first time for that matter, yeah. had the same experience. That can't be right. It sounds like a scam. <laughs> but yeah, then I talked to a couple of people there. I was like, this sounds interesting. So I <laughs> went to check it out. 
And to properly get a sense of the place, I wanted to have this conference as a little journey for myself and other entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. We can really get everyone out at Prospera, like including the founders, so we can learn as much about the place as possible. So that's what happened. And for me, it wasn't, I didn't plan that initially, but also for me, after that trip at the same conference, I pitched my idea of doing a VC fund. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And same experience. Eric told me, okay, what do you need to make it work? <laughs> and I didn't plan it at all. And, but then I was like, okay, I'm down. <laughs> I just really <laughs> fell in love with the community and the people here. And just the whole experience that it's so real. It's so there. There's buildings, yeah. there's people, there's businesses that are being created. It's not just a dream. It's actual reality. Which exactly. is also part of the reason why I want to recreate that experience. For anyone who's listening, the Prospera... FinTech and DeFi Summit 2022, which is the bigger version of that original Build Prospera Summit. It's on November 18 to 20. Go to infinitafund.com to sign up. The MTH Academy will feature as part of the program. So we're going to have the grand opening to the public yes. there. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward, man. Looking forward. Like, we want to do an opening of the place. And when the FinTech is there, where, when is the better time to do it? then during the fintech tech week. So why the name MTH? So the name MTH came to us last year when we were thinking with Gabriel, with my colleague, like what Bitcoin really means to us. And we came to conclusion like Bitcoin for us is a tool for communities and humanity to work together, to cooperate. So it's a tool for friendship and fellowship. And the word amity in English means friendship and fellowship. So by focusing on Bitcoin and doing Bitcoinization, we want to bring the age of amity, the age of cooperation, the age of humanity, fellowship, and, and this. So that's why the name Amity Age. And we wanted to have a mascot for the company. So we created little Amity Nakamoto, which is a granddaughter of Satoshi Nakamoto. And that's the little face that we have in the logo. So that's a little Amity. And when we are having tough times with Gabriel, thinking hard about, about obstacles and problems, sometimes we ask ourselves, dude, so what would Amity do? Let's ask Amity how to move forward from here. So that's why Amity age, and that's why our logo of Amity Nakamoto. So who knows better about Bitcoin than the granddaughter of Satoshi? Exactly. Tell me a bit more about your vision with Amity Age Academy and your vision for the future of Bitcoin and how you want to contribute to it? So when I was really thinking hard about what Bitcoin means to us or means to me personally and how I would like to contribute, I really realized that the best thing I can do is to educate people about it because that's what I love. That's my passion. And so in Bitcoin, you can do a lot of things. You can code, you can trade, you can do whatever. But my mission is the education. And I wanted to really have grander, grander goal that would be unreachable in just short time. So it would need a different approach to achieve that. I decided to educate 100 million people about Bitcoin by 2030. And that, to have a deadline and to have a measurable number. Did that sink in? 100 million people by 2030. Very measurable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And when people are asking me like, okay, so how are you doing? Or how can you do that? Every time I answer, like I'm, I'm leaning on the power of exponential function. <laughs> so I'm really believing that the last two years will be the most crucial ones of this goal. So the first years is more like uh, setting up the infrastructure and just really doing a lot of work and then it can exponentially grow. How I decided to do that is more like educating educators. So really helping teachers that or educators that would love to educate Bitcoin, to help them give them resources, know-how, public speaking skills, and all these kind of things that you need as an educator to really teach people in your community. Because then we can create this ripple effect or this multiplication effect. And if we can create a thousand or 10,000 educators, and each of them will educate 10,000 people, we can get to really high numbers after that. So this is the idea because 
just by myself or just by one entity, I don't think we can do it. Maybe we can. But the general idea is to really help educators in the communities. Because what I learned from Czech Republic and Slovakia, where I'm based right now, there was there is one YouTuber, Bitcoin YouTuber, that grew really rapidly. And he's a local. And he's doing it with kind of the local culture. And he's not pretending to be somebody else. He's just He's just himself. And this is what people love because they feel that this is somebody from their community. And when he is explaining Bitcoin, he's really, okay, this is one of us. Because on the live stream on the YouTube, he's just drinking a beer. He's just being himself. And he would do a Bitcoin podcast or a YouTube channel in English. I don't think that he might have this kind of traction. So I realized, I think the locality... And decentralization of education is super important. Everybody is doing it a little bit differently, have a different, knows the culture, the local culture. And I think this is what really can create the big ripple effect of education because the more people, the more Bitcoiners there is, I feel it's like a pillow, like a safety net for the economy, for the people and for a big monetary bubble that I think will explode sooner or later. And the Bitcoiners can create this pressure on the governance as well, but they can also trade peer-to-peer without the necessity of the government overlooking. So I think the more Bitcoiners there are, the more, the better the world will be, the more free the world can be. And this is the vision that, that I have for Bitcoin and for the Academy and MTH Academy. We want to be the vehicle for this change. We want to be the ones that will be a catalyzer for this for this change. Right. That gives me also a good segue to advertise another conference we're doing here. <laughs> which is probably just a week after I release the podcast, the Education Summit in October 2018. Nice. Also on the website. Yesterday, yesterday I spoke to Edward Lunny from Higher Ground Education, who has a Montessori school here in Prospera. He's great. And he also told me about, he's a great guy. And he told me about your children's book that Mm -hmm. explains Bitcoin that is available in that school. Can you talk a bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, it's really amazing book. It's called the Bitcoin money book, which is written by Michael Karras. And I did a Slovak translation because I, I fell in love with the book. It was about two years ago when my friend, she's a teacher and she was searching for material about Bitcoin for kids and she couldn't find anything. So she asked me, like, Dushan, do you know about something that the teachers can use? Because kids are asking them a lot about that and they don't know what to use. And I said, I have no idea, but I will research that. So I started doing the research and then my friend recommended me, oh, this is a Bitcoin money book for kids and I think it's good. I read it. I watched an online YouTube audiobook of that. And I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing resource. Because in 15 minutes... It really explains why Bitcoin was created. And this is the most fundamental question before learning about Bitcoin, learning the details and technicalities. You need to understand why we even have that. And And the book just explains it super well. So I wrote to the author. I sent him like, Michael, I want to do a Slovak translation. And he was like, why Slovak? Like, how many people are you there? I was like, just 5 million. I was like, well, if you want that, just do it. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I bought the author rights of the book, did a Slovak translation. And then I was thinking, okay, so I don't want the book just to be alone. So we created the whole concept of educating kids about financial literacy or about Bitcoin. And I created a curriculum, how to work with the book, how to teach teachers how to work with the book. And this was the main project. So we managed to crowdfund about 20,000 euros in Slovakia and donated more than 3,000 books already to schools. And in the program that we had about 80 teachers learning about Bitcoin, learning how to work with the book. This is something I really loved. And now I want to share the book everywhere I can. And we have it in the center as well for people to buy, to read. That's our vision as well. So, Dusan, what else do you do with MTH? MTH started as a Bitcoin mining company. So we started a mining operation in Europe last year, about one and a half years ago. And right now we are moving to Paraguay because it's the largest exporter of electricity in the world. 
They have 100% of electricity from hydro, so they are 100% renewables. So we are moving our machines there, and we are also we are also enabling other European clients, also from other countries, to to join us and go there with us. So MTH Mining is our first, let's say, a part of MTH. The resources from Bitcoin mining are used to run the academy, to run the educational activities of us. So that's how is our business model structured. What's your experience so far locally? You stressed how important it is to educate people locally and acculturate. So our experience so far was really great. I was really surprised by how people react well when we tell them about Bitcoin. Because most of the time when we were shopping, when we were buying some things, coffee or whatever else, every time I'm just joking, so do you accept Bitcoin already? And the people are like, oh, not yet, but maybe in future, you know. And when we tell them like, so we are here to really educate people about Bitcoin and help businesses to accept it. Most of them are like, wow, that's amazing. They want to know more. They want to come to the center. They want to educate themselves. And I was really surprised by that because in Slovakia, you don't have this kind of responses. People are more like, oh, this is scammy stuff. Because here we don't have so many financial problems, let's say. We don't experience inflation on a high level. We have banks everywhere. The cards are working, PayPal, whatever. But in countries where they have these kind of problems, where their banking system is lacking, they have high rates of card transactions, high fees and so on, they really get it. They really understand what it is. And they're not asking why we need Bitcoin. They're asking like how to have it, how to secure that, how to buy and sell it. And also Honduras has a neighbor of El Salvador which has Bitcoin as a legal tender. So that's helping as well. So yeah, the experience so far was pretty good. People are coming to meetups. We have one meetup today and we have them every two weeks. We onboarded already about 30 businesses on Roatan. Um, I already did one Bitcoin class for a secondary school in French Harbor and they liked it. They would like to get more education as this. So yeah, I think the future is bright. And people are really open to the whole idea and to learn. Yeah, I had the same experience. For background, Rodan is an island with about 70,000 people that live in there, right? Prospera is a small part of that island. It's part of the community. And mm -hmm. there's existing infrastructure that we're using, roads, there's good supermarkets, good medical clinics. Unfortunately, the situation isn't that great when it comes to waste management in schools, but it's something we want to work on and improve. Prosper has helped the neighboring village get a better sanitation and sewage system. So uh, what I really like about what we're doing is that we're also working a lot with locals around us. And I've also been seeing the, or been viewing the reception as extraordinarily positive. What few people know is that most people on the island speak perfect English. Like sometimes mm. you hear someone on the island in a store speaking perfect American accent English. Right, because yeah. it used to be a British colony, and when they tell people about it, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's great! It creates jobs." And oh, I want to also learn more how to do my own business, create a website. Can you help me? I just love the island and its people on it. Yeah, I agree with that. It was and also for me super surprising. It's it's super English speaking island. The other thing that surprised me as a Central European guy was that the second largest community on the island after Americans is Czech, which is that's our neighboring country. We used to be one country 30 years ago. I was like, what are Czechs doing on Roatan? We're like, what the heck? And there is a Czech village. There used to be a Czech brewery. I was like, oh my God, I need to really go there and to research that because this was fascinating. How do you think the next 10 years will look like both for... MTH Academy for yourself and for Prospera. How will it look like 10 years into the future? As I told you, I'm a big fan of exponential function. Our brains cannot think in exponential way. We are only thinking linearly. So whatever I say, that's going to be in 10 years, probably not going to be in 10 years. But I want to fill up ideal scenario would be that we will fulfill our mission, educating 100 million people. MTH Academy in 10 years will have dozens and dozens of locations around the world. I would love to have them mostly in countries with high inflation rates where 
Bitcoin can really be a good tool for them to fight inflation or to have the tools for international trade, being part of the global trade and having the payment railway that is functional, fast, reliable and censorship resistant. I imagine MIT Academy as a really entity that's helping with education of Bitcoin around the world in many countries, in dozens of countries. And we working on, let's say, something like franchise model where we can give the tools and know how to create MTH Academy locally. We can give it to different people and they can have the same concept. So that's what I see for the MTH Academy. I think the Prospera will have dozens of hubs around the world in places that want to embrace freedom. They want to embrace better level of governance. And I see Prospera as Prospera citizens to be really recognized as citizens around the world. So we will have a like ID card that we can use when traveling around the world in airplanes and wherever. And we will be visiting the hubs around the world and there will be places where, where the prosperity will be happening. A lot of business, a lot of business via cryptocurrencies, via Bitcoin will be happening. And for, my, for me, myself, I see it as a, being a young father of about seven years old kid, maybe two kids, enjoying time on Roatan in Slovakia, traveling around the world on a sailboat with my girlfriend and uh, paying with Bitcoin almost everywhere and using Bitcoin as a regular payment and not thinking about using fiat money anymore. Let's talk a bit more about Bitcoin and the future of money. So my audience is probably more crypto literate, but you're mm -hmm. probably educating a lot of people for the first time about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. If you just had three minutes, what would be the key points you would want to get across about Bitcoin for someone who's initially skeptical about it? What really got me hooked about Bitcoin. And I realized that as the world move forward, we cannot have a money that's controlled by small amount of people that can change the rules by their wish any day and that they can create infinite amounts of money with the whip of a hand. And looking at the history of money, this is what the history is showing us. Almost all the forms of money that ever existed in the world since the beginning of time were destroyed by somebody's ability to create the money out of thin air or really easily. That created inflation or hyperinflation and that erased the form of money. So for humanity to really work and progress in future and to be an interplanetary species, we need to have money that's digital and that's definite. We need to have a digital money. That's the first stepping stone. And when we're going to have a digital money, the question is who's going to manage the money? And what if nobody can manage the money? What if the money can be managed by everybody in the world who can contribute to the security of money without anybody changing the rules. This was the founding idea of Satoshi Nakamoto and the cypherpunks about Bitcoin. And that's why I see that this Bitcoin is a next evolutionary stepping stone in the forms of money. We cannot go back to gold because it's super hard to transport. We cannot fly with gold to Mars. It's hard to verify. And in the universe, there is almost infinite amount of gold. So we need to have something that's universally scarce and nobody can create more of it. So that's why Bitcoin. And as well, we need to have money that somebody cannot stop, which means that anybody can transact with anybody. We need to have money that's censorship resistant, that cannot be seized from you, that the account cannot be blocked. All these functions, the Bitcoin have them inside already programmed so i believe it is the next stepping stone in forms of money and the security it has the network effect um all these variables as an open source um approach all this makes it hardest and soundest form of money that we experience so far and the, the second best is gold 
but the first best is Bitcoin so far. I don't think we will find something better. I think if there will be some technically better coin, it will never get this traction because it was created after the discovery of Bitcoin, after discovery of this digital scarcity. So I don't believe in cryptos in general. That's why I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, because I believe Bitcoin will survive and maybe something else. But the other protocols will be more used for maybe different approaches, different things. But if you're speaking about money as a tool, as a language of value, I think we already have the winner, but it needs to manifest in the real world and it will take some time. And that, that is how I see Bitcoin. And that's a tool for freedom. That's the most peaceful way of fighting against the financial tyranny and that the most peaceful way of how to express your disagreeing of how the financial world is working without going to protest, without throwing Molotov cocktails to the crowds or to a central bank, just opt out of the fiat system into Bitcoin and you can trade peer-to-peer -peer without anybody stopping you. And that's revolutionary. I entirely agree on the digital money aspect of it. The best argument I can think of against it is that the fiat or the dollar system at least worked relatively well for a time since the 1980s in what's called the Great Moderation, when you had independent central banks and very moderate amounts of inflation. But it also changed recently. We see much higher amounts of inflation and of money printing. And also much or most of the world has not experienced that. So it was mostly parts of the developed world that experienced low and moderate inflation. And mm. you already made the case that in many parts of the developing and emerging worlds, you have very high rates of inflation and governments that are much more abusive when it comes to using money. Would yeah. you add anything to that debate? One thing that came into my mind, and maybe, maybe people know about it, maybe not, is with Bitcoin, you can be your own bank. And the story that came to my mind is what happened in Lebanon a few weeks ago. So the guy, he had about $100,000 in the bank and he needed $50,000 to cover the cost of care for his father because he was diagnosed with the, with the illness. He came to a bank and they didn't give him the money. They told him, we will give you $200. And he said, no, I need this money for my father. So what he did, he came to the bank with the gun and with the gasoline. And he told to the bankers that if they don't give him his own money, he's going to burn himself alive there. It's a big drama for about six hours. And first they wanted to give him like 2,000. He said, no. Then he, they proposed 10,000. He said, not at all. And then they agreed on $35,000. While the drama was happening, there were like hundreds of people outside of the bank supporting this guy and calling him a hero to really express the desperation that's happening in Lebanon because the inflation is like in 90% during the last year. And people are realizing that their money in the bank are not their money, that it's bank money. And the bank decide how much of that they will give you. And this is, I think, something that we need to also realize. And people living in countries, maybe when they don't have a bank account or where they experience something like this, they already know that. People who are living in Europe, for example, we're thinking like, oh, this will never happen to us. But once it happens, then you realize you're screwed. When we don't have a plan B, when you don't have a life raft, something like Bitcoin or physical gold or whatever, then you're really in a big trouble. How people can think about Bitcoin or about digital currencies in general is this is a tool where you can be your own bank. And that's super important when you need it until you don't need it you think it's ah it will never happen but once it happens you will be super happy that you have this plan b a couple of other counter arguments or skepticisms that are here towards bitcoin one is the high amount of energy use what's your response mm -hmm. to that it's a myth one thing that is true about that is the level of energy is high <clears throat> but relative to what that's the more important question because the consumption of Bitcoin, of electricity, is about $10 billion a year. You know what, you know what consumes one-third of that? $3 billion a year? 
the consumption of Christmas lights in the US only during the Christmas time, it's about 3 billion a year, one third of Bitcoin consumption. So let's combine all the lights, all the Christmas lights around the world. Should we use that or should we ban it? You need to look at the perspective of consumption in terms of, first of all, compared to what, and then how much we get the energy. Bitcoin mining is the most energy efficient and the most green industry in the world. More than 54% of energy used for mining is from renewable resources. And there are multiple reasons for that. Why, it, why is it like that and why it will be growing? Because the market mechanics favor renewables that are off-grid, they are really far away and not reachable right now. And they favor that to be for Bitcoin mining because Bitcoin is the energy consumption of last resort. You can put the container in the jungle, basically. You have the solar panels and it can run there, right? So I will not go deeply into that, but first of all, about 54% is from renewables. And then from the general consumption of the world, Bitcoin consumes less than 0.1%. And when everybody's screaming, let's ban Bitcoin because it's consuming, it's going to burn the oceans, it's going to evaporate the oceans. It's a fraction of consumption. And the energy is used to secure the largest or the most secure network in the world that we have currently, that you cannot change the transaction history. And that's the powerful thing. And that's revolutionary. That's my answer, like a short answer to the whole thing. There's one thing I like to mention when speaking about Bitcoin and environmental problems and all these kind of things. There is something called Brangelini's law. Have you heard about that? No. So what the Brangelini's law is saying is that the amount of energy that is used for creating a bullshit or a hoax is much, much lower than the amount of energy that's needed to destroy or debunk the hoax, debunk the myth. So that's, it's super easy to say that Bitcoin is an environmental disaster, but it's much harder to show why it's not true. And that's why people don't hear these arguments against this myth. And that's why it's common in people to, to think that it, this is true. Another thing I would add is that also speaks to our inability to create more energy, more cheaply and more cleanly. Right, so we'll have a podcast episode soon with Jay Stores Hall, the author of the book Where's My Flying Car, who talks about how nuclear power, for example, is a stranded technology that was held back by regulation and by protests, even though it's much cleaner, much more powerful than other sources. So it's not necessarily an argument against Bitcoin, it's an argument for thinking harder or when it comes to producing more energy, more cheaply and more clean. Another thing that I'm curious about, what about the Bitcoin whales? So Bitcoin was initially started like a private initiative and people could buy certain amounts of Bitcoin, right? So it's not like there's an sort of that represents the real share of production that different people have in the economy. It represents an initial investment risk that some people took. Doesn't that mean, does that mean, doesn't that mean that it could be skewed towards a few people? I understand that people are maybe afraid that they, these whales can move the price or they are angry that some people have thousands of Bitcoins and they don't. You know, one thing is that they took a risk in the first days of Bitcoin and they spend their time mining, they spend electricity, they spend time learning about it. And it was an investment of their time, of their energy, of course, it took much lower amount of energy to mine Bitcoin at the time than today. But that's the risk. Think about that. Because this is the same approach as saying that investors in a company, they don't or they shouldn't have dividends because they are not the one that doing the hard work. So the hard workers should be ones receiving all the money. This kind of Marxist theory of labor. But the investors are taking risks. They are using money that they needed to earn before, and now they can reinvest it as a productive capital, as energy that can be used in this in these ventures, right? I'm not afraid of these Bitcoin whales of influencing the market a lot. Some of them will cash out sooner or later because they say, okay, I had enough 
and I want fiat, so I'm selling Bitcoin. And I think that's good. And why I think that's good is that every time when somebody is selling Bitcoin, for example, when the price is dropping and people, the weak hands are selling, who is buying? Only people who know what they're buying are buying Bitcoin at the time. So to the buyers, because you cannot sell to the exchange, you cannot sell to the vacuum. There needs to be a counterparty on the other side. And this counterparty, when the Bitcoin is dropping 10% or 20%, the counterparties are the ones who understand what Bitcoin is. And so the Bitcoin is moving to the people who really knows what it is and what's the value of that. Not the current exchange rate, but the value for future. And also when people think that these whales can move price a lot on a short scale, on a short time scale, yes. But these price attacks might be really costly to them because it's not, okay, I have 10,000 Bitcoin, then I click sell price down and I click buy on the bottom and I just buy for lower. No, it doesn't work like that. When they start to sell on the top until they sell the last part of Bitcoin, the price can drop 10, 15%. So that's, and when they start to buy again, the average price of this, let's say price attack might be higher than the price that they started at. So these kind of attacks are nation. Yeah, this is how they're going to manipulate the price and gather more Bitcoin. But in reality, the exchange mechanics or market mechanics doesn't work like that. So I'm not against whales. They risked in the beginnings. They saw something that others didn't see. Some of them were like lucky because they had no idea. They just did it and tried out and now they are rich. Good for them. If they're going to use the money, they will put the money into economy to something that they value. So they will either buy a car, a house or whatever. Do it on a voluntary basis. So they support with the new money that has now much more value. They will support the economy. And not, there's nothing wrong about that. Yeah. I'm curious if I can make a case for competition among cryptocurrencies. I'm open to be more convinced to going to what's closer to the maximalist position. I'm probably something or a friend used the word once. He's a Pareto maximalist, right? So what? A Pareto? Pareto maximalist. So 80-20. 80-20? <laughs> okay. And it nice. kind of comes from that belief that Bitcoin certainly is a shelling point. The most obvious cryptocurrency, it works. It's the biggest, the most trusted, the most widely available. And that makes it the best bet in if your thesis is that the world will experience much more inflation in the future and money systems, monetary systems will have certain problems. But I would still make an argument for competition among cryptocurrencies. And the argument is based on the concept of transaction costs. Right. So what I think the blockchain is ultimately doing, it's basically putting Moore's law against or behind behind the technology that can make trading of tokens or a different word for it would be property rights, almost zero transaction cost. Because right now what we do for trading property rights, ownership and certain things, is lots of contracts, it's lawyers and things like that. The blockchain can basically eliminate that. And mm -hmm. when it comes to money, the blockchain is a specific use case for the blockchain, where we again have a decentralized system as opposed to a system with third parties. And the system with third parties has certain transaction costs. Mm -hmm. This transaction cost is the risk of default, is the risk of inflation, is the risk of abuse by government. And basically cryptocurrency helps overcome that risk. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think there is a long way to go towards zero transaction costs, right? You still need to convince people to adopt it, for example, that comes with costs. So Bitcoin mining comes at certain costs. It has a certain energy use. So I would like different cryptocurrencies to compete on lower transaction costs. Hey, this one mm -hmm. uses less energy. Maybe this other currency doesn't deliver on that promise as well. It might be used for payments really well. And maybe there's something to the fear of Bitcoin. Maybe it turns out in 10 years or 20 years, there is some security leak that we don't know about. So you mm -hmm. want to have other currencies that you can switch to, or at least the people that are skeptical. Competition is good for the ecosystem. I agree. I call myself a maximalist, but it's not like I'm this military maximalist that I hate 
everybody who touched ever a different coin because I used to have 50 currencies in the beginnings and I was the guy searching for the next Bitcoin. And that's most of my friends that got into Bitcoin or crypto in that time, they were searching for, okay, Bitcoin is the first mover, first one. What's the next? What's the next generation? Because it's every time it's like the first one is there, he opens up the market and then the newcomers will just get better and faster and more reliable. It took me a few years to understand it with money. It works a bit differently than with a lot of tech sector and tech industry. And it's the same as with languages, with measurement units, with units in general. But I will get back to that. So also a huge fan of competition. And that's why I'm like, okay, let's have everybody freely compete on the market of the best currency. And I think that's good. And I'm against any regulations stopping people to develop currencies. If they want to, let's have, let them have their shot. What I don't like, and that's happening a lot in the ecosystem, is like a lot of fraud and really scammy marketing is happening and promises that are not true. Because most of the people in the crypto space are newbies that don't know how the blockchain works, actually. What's the difference between or what are the drawbacks and trade-offs between decentralization and block space? And a bunch of these things that I had no idea before when I was first days, first weeks and months in, in Bitcoin. And for them, doing marketing that's scammy, they don't see that it's scammy. And this is what I don't like. When they're projects that are honest and they are competing honestly, that's what I like. What I see is happening and in the world of open source, anything that really makes sense will be adopted or can be adopted by Bitcoin. It will not be adopted on the first layer because that's not efficient for security purposes, but it will be adopted on the second and third layers. We can synthesize any asset that you find price oracle to we can synthesize it on the Bitcoin Lightning Network over DLC contracts, which is a big thing. Right now, recently, a few weeks ago, a Taro was um, announced, a protocol that allows to create any asset, any tokens on Lightning Network, and you can root them basically almost for free. When we speak about competing on a level of transaction fees, Let's not compare Bitcoin as a first layer, but let's compare the second layer because the second layer is optimized for scalability, for transaction fees, and it's doing really great there. It's used pretty well and it's growing because when we are want to do low transaction fees uh, on the first layer of blockchain, it means we're going to have the blockchain grow super fast or it can be DDoSed, so it can be uh, clutched, clocked with really almost free transactions. So it, the, the block space will rise. So there are a bunch of trade-offs. And this is what a lot of people are not realizing. But again, let have people have a competition, a free competition, but without scammy tactics, without scammy marketing, without frauds. This is what I don't like. And I point to that every time when I see that. And it's happening a lot in DeFi, in NFT segments. That's why I'm not a big fan of that, and, but I'm a big fan of, of competition. And when I return back into what I said in the first place, the competition in the money, I think, and the history is showing us that humanity is converging to one tool, to one form of money that has the best values or the best features the money can have. And historically, for thousands of years, it was gold because of the reasons that we know, scarcity, divisibility, physically, chemically stable element, and so on. And we have the same, for example, with languages. Humanity is slowly converging into smaller and smaller amount of languages. Why? Because it's efficient for people. We are limiting the transaction costs of various nations by communicating with the same language. Look at us, we are having a podcast in English, my native language is Slovak. When I'm going to have a kid, I will. I want to teach them English and Spanish, for example, but I'm not going to force them to learn Polish 
or Bulgarian, although they might be nice languages, but the network effect of that language is super low and the energy used to teach that, to learn that, it's the same, maybe even higher than learning English and Spanish. And the same we have in units of measurement, of weight, of whatever. Imagine if every country have a different measurement unit, different meter. It's super inefficient for humanity. We have right now, let's say, two major measurement units, let's say yards or inches and feet and meters. And even this is really weird. You know, I'm coming to Roatan, everything is measured in inches and feet. I'm like, oh my God, it's super hard for me to think with that. If the humanity will have one measurement unit, how efficient could that be? And the money is the same category as languages, measurement units, kilogram units, whatever units, right? It's efficient for humanity to have one really like a language of value because otherwise you don't need to do all these calculations to lempiras, dollars. The only reason why we have so many currencies is because every state wants to have the monopoly of the currency and they are not allowing free market on that. If we allowed a free market on money in dozens of years, in a couple of decades, we would end up with one, two, maybe three major currencies, major forms of money, and that's it. Because people need to decide which money they're going to use. And they're going to use the ones that has the most network effect, has the most security, and they don't care about all these nice features. You know, we have Esperanto as a new language, which might be super efficient, but how many people speak that? It doesn't make sense to learn Esperanto because even though it might be great language, you don't, you cannot speak with almost anybody. It's more like a hobby to learn that. So the English and the Chinese, because of the size, maybe we'll win with the Spanish and we will see how the world will develop on this. There's a difference between Bitcoin becoming the only or the most widely used currency and Bitcoin as this digital gold alternative, right? We had currencies that were backed up by gold, but you weren't doing payments in gold, right? Yes. And I think there's a case for that to be made, right? I sympathize with that Bitcoin as digital gold thesis mm -hmm. because it is the most trusted. It is a shelling point. It's been around for so long. There's no competitor even near or close. But at the same time, I do see local advantages for using other currencies. Like, for example, again, convincing your community to use it, right? Or building a new organization that's using kind of a currency in their way. There's a big advantage to having these currencies being backed up by Bitcoin. But by why would you do that? What benefit gives you a new currency that backed, that's backed by Bitcoin? It all goes down to transaction costs, right? So you have different levels of technology, different levels of literacy and acceptance and credibility of a currency, right? To be that's able to transact Bitcoin on a daily basis with payments, say in Brazil, you'd have mm -hmm. to convince millions of people to use it. That comes with certain costs. So maybe that's, and someone needs to do it. So maybe it is easier for them if they say, hey, we're not going to use this thing. We're going to use something else. We're going to use like the Florianopolis coin or something like that, or the Miami coin or whatever gives you more local credibility, whatever is more adapted also to the local technology. Right, because maybe people aren't that literate or want to use ATMs or smartphones or whatever. You need to build your own stack. And that stack comes with a certain cost. But for me, it doesn't make sense because e either way, either with Bitcoin or local Brazil coin, you need to convince people to use that. That's the same thing. Either they decide to Bitcoin or, or that. With new coin, you don't have security that Bitcoin has. You cannot secure new coin just like that because why Bitcoin is secure? Because there is so many miners behind it. That's the security budget of, of Bitcoin, which cannot be copy pasted. This is super important. It's the energy that needs to be consumed. So even though you can copy paste the code, you cannot copy paste the security of the currency. And then when you're doing the local currency, it means that you're limited to the local markets and the local economy. And when people want to go out of Brazil 
they need to find somebody who's willing to accept this and give them Bitcoin. But what if that person says, look, Bitcoin is accepted worldwide. Why should I give you my Bitcoin for your local Brazil coin when I don't want to go to Brazil? So you're restricting people to use it on a small scale. I don't see any benefit to that. What I love the most is like letting people decide on themselves, letting it on, let's say, evolution or free market forces. And then it's beautiful to to look at it on the day-to-day interactions, what money people will choose over time. And otherwise, then like forcing, look, this is the new coin, you're going to use it here. Or this is our company, we're going to use this coin. Why? I would love them to decide, guys, if you want to use different coin, just build it yourself. (laughs) If you want to, I'm not going to force you to do anything. I used to be in, in your position or like with your mindset before. And right now, I just don't see... I just don't see the benefit because with Lightning Network, I don't know how much you use Lightning Network, but I use it a lot on a daily basis. And for the transaction cost there, fraction of a cent. It's beautiful. It works amazingly, right? And it can scale to hundreds of thousands up to a million transactions per second, which was not tested yet on a, like an empirical basis. But how it works, it's just great and it works in layers and the money in the past worked also in layers we had gold and as you said then we had fiat currency why because moving gold was super inefficient that's why we had papers that represented gold and that was great it was a great step when it was one-to-one with gold and the gold was backed and redeemable for the paper that system was a great system but when the fractional reserve banking and uh, 1971, Bretton Woods collapsed, and then we had a free flow of money, 50 years we're living in right now, and that's pretty messed up. But the world was converging also money in, into levels, in, into layers. First layer, gold. Second layer, dollar. Third layer, Visa and MasterCard, because what they do, they just move dollars. They don't have their own currencies. They just move dollars on a more efficient way. And this is what happening with Bitcoin. First layer, blockchain, Bitcoin on-chain. Second layer, Lightning Network. But we also have state chains. We have liquids. We have different ways how you can move Bitcoin. And then we have third layers. So there will be multiple technologies inside of Lightning that's being developed right now. And that's beautiful thing that's happening. I'm a big fan of stacking money into layers. And there is a beautiful book called Layered Money that explains the history of money and looking in various times of history, how the layers were structured. And that can give also nice insights into what happened with money in the past. I think we're not very far away from each other. So we both agree that we have competition decide what it is. And I think that layered approach is also similar to what I was thinking that coin is a digital gold that's underwriting almost any other currency or monetary systems on top. How the reality will look like under free market is probably a question of flavors and we're all investing differently. I'm again, mostly also invested in Bitcoin, much more mm. than like 80, 20 or something like that. I want to pose another challenge though. And I think it's quite important. And that is the question of the risk of default. And there's a stupid way of thinking about that, that I want to refute before we kind of have the real argument. And that is, oh, Bitcoin is only driven by demand. It can be a flavor of the day. And people who bring that argument often don't think that, isn't that the same thing for other currencies? With the difference that you have the force of a government that's putting pressure on people to use it, right? (laughs) Yeah. And these governments can default as well, right? We've seen the Arab Spring the biggest empires in the world, the Roman empires have collapsed. You can mm-hmm. all of a sudden have the belief in authority lost and also the demand in the thing lost. But I think that could also apply to Bitcoin, right? So there could be an event that makes people all of a sudden distrusted, see it as a bad thing, and it goes out of fashion. So I think Definitely. the risk of default of Bitcoin, or for that matter, of any fiat currency or any other, any future version of it, Mm It's never zero, right? (laughs) I agree with that. Uh, There can be an event 
and I spoke about it yesterday with my friends that if there will be an event where which will be super significant, I will let everybody know, all my clients, all my social networks, guys, this is super serious. And I may I might be at that time selling all my Bitcoin as soon as possible. And what that even might be, it might be some really critical vulnerability. Or but I need to really understand what it is because otherwise it might be some kind of oh just may, may minor thing and I might be freaking out. But there is a non-zero chance that some kind of event like this might happen. There might be a flaw in the mathematics behind Bitcoin, which is super, super low probability of that, but never zero. I don't know if I would call it a risk of default because the risk of default is mostly connected to third parties because the same might, same argument might go, does the gold have a risk of default? What would you say to that? Yeah, in terms of credibility or demand. Credibility and demand, definitely. But what would need to happen that people start to, that something about gold that we knew for hundreds of years would change immediately? Well, because we know that maybe because there will be a totalitarian government that dominates the world and uses gold as a mean of exchange. And then afterwards, that totalitarian government gets overthrown and gold gets branded as this bad and evil thing. Yeah, if it's just about like the marketing, oh, don't touch gold because it was used by somebody bad. Yeah, that might be that. It's more like a cultural thing because the money as a tool, it's a cultural concept, right? All the money that we had in the past, all the money that we will have in the future as humanity will be every time something that we somehow agreed on or somehow culturally or over time chose as a tool that represents value. So if it was a gold stones, shells in the past, every time some amount of people decided this is what we're going to use. Why? Because we cannot produce it easily. But the same thing happened in Africa, where the glass beads were used because Africans didn't have a glass industry. They used that as money because it was scarce to them. When Europeans realized that, they start to import tons and tons of glass beads into Africa while taking bunch of gold and resources out of that. Why? Because they realized it's super easy and cheap to produce that. So whatever form of money might be distrust in future, and there might be some kind of event happens, it will be distrusted. But if it's going to be more like, oh, some bad guy used this money, let's not use that. I don't take that as a solid argument. If it will be some kind of technical flaw in the mm-hmm. protocol, that's different. And there's this analogy, right? The argument against gold could be that you can seize it, right? That's the key mm-hmm. security flaw with gold, right? So yeah. that's the analogy to Bitcoin, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah, that was that's the problem of gold, the physicality. Yeah, because yeah. it's seizable, hard transferable. You cannot stuck gold into internet cable and send it to Rotan, but you can do that with Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin is building on the great features and characteristics of gold and building on that while introducing new and better features. And that's why I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. But can it can happen some even that it will be discredited? It can happen. Definitely yeah, there yeah. is non-zero probability and I agree with you on that. And but from all the currencies I think it has the lowest probability. Yeah, yeah. And, but I would give that to yeah. anyone as advice, though, to think very hard what probability they give it of default. Is it like 10%, 5%, 1%, 0.5%? Because that's a critical factor in you making your investment decision, right? It's hard to predict. It's a number of, uh, it's a game of guessing, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but then again, that applies me, to it... other fiat currencies as well. That applies to governments as well. That applies to almost anything. There's a statistics that's saying, how often a fiat currency fails. Do you know what is the average lifetime of a fiat currency? Tell me. Every 23 years in the past, one fiat currency just was wiped out because of wars, hyperinflations, reforms, fails of the state. Every 23 years, a fiat currency is wiped out, which will be the next one. There was a study done for 770 fiat currencies in the past. Out of that, 
only 20 22, 23% are in existence. The rest fail. I couldn't agree more. My case for decentralized finance is 100% maximalist. <laughs> and my case for Bitcoin is also very strong. It's just amazing that we have that technology now to create a better financial system, better financial guardrails. So for hundreds of thousands of years, that was exclusively a technology that was used and abused by governments with sort of the results that we're just describing. And now you can have millions of people around the world working on better solutions without anyone just from a technical perspective being able to seize or interrupt that. And I think what Satoshi brought to us is a really a technological inflection point in history that can probably be compared to steam engine or the use of horses or of gunpowder or of steel in human history. Just a technology that's fundamentally altered the balance of power, fundamentally allowed new actors to arise. And I think that will ultimately shape our future. It's a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous invention. And I think it, what I used to say is stay with us. It cannot be uninvented. The genie cannot be put back into the bottle. We need to live with that. We need to learn about it. And the best thing we can do is really embrace it, learn about that. Great. I would say Satoshi for the Nobel Peace Prize 10 times over. Yeah, definitely. Anything cool. else? Dushan, we had an epic conversation learning more about MTH Academy, your work as a Bitcoin educator, your grand mission to educate 100 million people around the world. In Bitcoin, we also learned more about Prospera and the island of Roatan. Hope that inspires more people to come here and check it out for themselves. It's not a scam. There's a thriving <laughs> community of other entrepreneurs here. So join us November yes. 18 to 20 at the FinTech and DeFi Summit in Prospera. Go to infinitafunds.com to check it out. Dushan, yes. anything you would else you would like to drive listeners' attention to? How can they find you? What are you looking for right now? Investors or hiring? Anything? People can follow us as METH on Twitter. So at METH, or they can follow me at Twitter, Dusan underscore Matuska. And I'm tweeting about Bitcoin, freedom, and all these kind of things. Right now, we are in a stage of moving machines to Paraguay. So anybody interested in, in mining, in mining operations with more than 0.3 megawatts or 300 kilowatts or about 100 machines is open to, to join us and, and hold machines with us. We have great partners in Paraguay. So yeah, feel free to, to reach out to me about Bitcoin mining and related topics. Dushan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Nicolas. And see you soon on Roatan on FinTech Summit on the opening event of MTH. Cocktails with the Zipt on a fantastic Caribbean beach. Oh, yes. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.